Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. So emergency use authorization or EUA, what is it? What's it all about? And why are so many people talking about it now during this COVID-19 situation? So good news, I got expert Mike Drews on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast to sort of unpack what EUA is, maybe what it is not, and uh, hopefully gives you a few tips and pointers on how you might be able to consider this possible pathway. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, founder, and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Group, John Spear. And I say special, it's going to be a couple of familiar voices from the Global Medical Device Podcast, but a lot of things happening in the world right now. Specifically, yeah, I'm talking about COVID-19. And, you know, this has sort of surfaced... um, I guess a lot of interesting things on the news, uh, stories about you know companies changing their manufacturing to be able to better support the the needs of healthcare workers and patients and things of that nature. I know a lot of folks are are really trying to figure out what they can do to help uh, you know de- traditional device companies, non traditional device companies, but really trying to to be a resource. And there's some uh, some challenges with this because, yeah, there is a regulatory pathway from FDA known as the emergency use authorization, but there's lots of nuances to this. And I thought, who better to share some insights and, and thoughts and things for you all to ponder? Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences is joining me today. So welcome, Mike. Thank you, John. Yeah, you're welcome. You know, uh, maybe it's a little campy, but... I know there is some confusion about what is why is this thing called coronavirus, and so maybe it's an interesting factoid. But uh, you happen to know why it's called that? I do, John. Thank you for asking. It has nothing to do with the the beer of the same name. Believe it or not, somebody did ask me. You know, does this come from the beer? Or does it have to do with the the beer? Absolutely not. Coronavirus, and by the way, not to get into a lot of immunology here, but there is no such thing as a coronavirus. Corona refers to a family of viruses. There's a whole bunch of different viral types within this family based on the shape. So when you look at this type of virus, this family of virus under an electron microscope, it looks like it has a a halo or sort of a crown to it. And so this is why we call this family of viruses the coronavirus. Probably the, the most publicized example before today of a coronavirus was the virus that causes severe acute respiratory syndrome or SARS that was in the news about 15 years ago or so. At the time, SARS virus infected about 8,000 people and killed about 800 people worldwide. Obviously, COVID-19 which is the specific virus that we're talking about here, that one is much worse in terms of numbers. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's a big deal, of course. I mean, you you and me and I think pretty much just about everybody in the world these days is in some sort of quarantine. Our life has changed for all of humanity uh, in some way, shape, or another in recent weeks. And, you know, I, I know we're all anxious to get back to normal and we're all uh, also anxious or, or willing to do our part to make sure that we can do so in the safest manner possible. So, uh, you know, for everyone listening, thank you for, for your part in helping, you know, flatten the curve, as they say. But let's 
talk a little bit about this emergency use authorization or EUA. Probably a good place to start for folks. What is it? And maybe a little bit of background about that. Again, great question, John. And as always, thanks for the opportunity to to talk about this very uh, important and certainly very timely topic with you and your audience. So first of all, the emergency use authorization or the EAU, it's absolutely not new. Some people have asked me, well, was this created recently as a result of this corona pandemic or something? Absolutely not. It's been around for quite a long time. In the past, it's been used for such things as anthrax, the Ebola virus, H7N1, uh, influenza, the Zika virus, a few other things. So it's been around for a long time. Principally, it's been used in the past by drug and biotech companies, not quite so much for medical device companies, which is why it seems so new to, to so many people in our industry. But simply put, the emergency use authorization allows FDA to try to help strengthen our country's protections against chemicals biological, radiological, and nuclear defense threats. And interestingly enough, this originally was created for that purpose, for chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear weapons. And the way it protects us by is by facilitating the availability and the use of medical countermeasures needed during these kinds of healthcare emergencies. Now, clearly, the situation that we're in right now with regard to the coronavirus That was not a chemical, biological, radiological, or nuclear weapon, but we're still using the same same regulatory mechanism to try to bring these products out to the market quickly. Here's the key, here's the important part for the folks in our industry and uh, especially the regulatory folks to, to understand. In order for us to have a legitimate emergency use authorization, We need to to have, and I quote, this is from the guidance, the EAU may allow unapproved medical products, that is products that are not yet on the market, or unapproved uses of approved products. So those are products that are already on the market for something else, and now we want to modify them somehow for corona. It will allow us to use these products in, in an emergency Uh, situation, which is clearly what we're in now, in order to, and here's another key phrase, John, diagnose, treat, or prevent a serious or life-threatening disease or condition. And then this is the last part that's also very important, when there are no adequate, approved, or available alternatives. I know I went through a lot of verbiage there verbally, but some of the words, some of the phrases here are very important. Do you think I should repeat some of this, John? Maybe. And let me ask the question um, before, because each of those in and of themselves, I mean, and let's make sure this is not an and situation. This can be an or situation, correct? Which part are you referring to? No, just in general. Like, so like, um, you don't have to meet all of these conditions, obviously. These are all possible scenarios where this EUA could be applicable, right? In general, yes. But, you know, this verbiage, which I'm quoting right out of the guidance, let's put it this way, John, nothing comes out of the FDA, whether we're talking about corona or anything else, that is not thoroughly vetted by a whole bunch of people, including a bunch of lawyers. So they choose their words here. You know, they put in a lot of caveats, a lot of disclaimers and so on. But uh, but, but you pick out to, to you, John, maybe for a discussion, what, what couple of phrases that I just went through that you think are the most important for us to talk about? Yeah, well, I think, you know, I don't want to insult people's intelligence. I know they're going to have the ability to read the guidance. I've read it, you know, in the past week or two myself, probably, I don't know, a dozen times. 
but the words are, are confusing at times. You know, so, is that a surprise in the regulatory world? No, no, it's not a surprise at all. <laughs> but you know, the devil's in the details, and you know, we're. I think we're. It seems like a lot of things I'm hearing from folks is that while your point is is completely accurate, you know, of course the EUA has been around for a decent amount of time. But I gotta imagine that, and, and no other time in history prior to now has this been tested so much, so to speak. I guess maybe that's the right word, right? Correct. Well, yeah. let me give you what I think are, are one or two uh, examples because I'm working right now with several companies that are actually doing this or thinking seriously about doing this, and that's one of the reasons why I'm doing this word-for-word comparison. So, one of the companies that I'm working with, I actually had a conference call with them earlier today. They have a software device that is in the area of, let me just say, image analysis. Okay. And they believe that it could be beneficial to patients with corona. Here's the dilemma. Part of the regulatory requirement, as I read, is it needs to diagnose, treat, or prevent a serious condition like corona. Well, the the dilemma that the company has is if they specifically indicate for corona, yes, that will maximize their ability to meet the EAU criteria, but at the same time, it will increase their regulatory burden because now they will have to collect data, most likely clinical data, to support that claim. On the other hand, if they don't make that specific claim to corona, then they will have a much lower regulatory burden. They will need much less clinical data, maybe no clinical data at all. But on the other hand, it's going to be hard to argue, uh, you know, to walk into the FDA and argue with a straight face that we fit EAU if we don't diagnose, treat, or prevent uh, a specific condition. So that's the dilemma. Yeah. And then... And and then one other thing I'll mention, John, and I'd love to have you chime in. Another key phrase is what I read at the end of that quote from the guidance, when there are no adequate approved or available alternatives. There aren't that many areas in medicine, John, where there isn't another option already available. So the point that I'm trying to make is very simple. If FDA takes a strict interpretation, a literal interpretation of these worlds, and I'm I'm not suggesting that they should or they should not, I'm just saying that if they do, then potentially they could kick an EAU application simply on the grounds that there's another product out there that does the same or similar thing, an alternative. Yeah, does that make sense? It does, and I, and I, well, we'll save that. I, I have I want to talk about some some applications or some things that that we've been hearing on the news and that sort of thing for a little bit, so we can I guess unpack that here in a moment. But yeah, it, it makes perfect sense, and it's really interesting. Um, so let's uh, I guess you know keeping in the spirit of of the EUA side of things, there seems to be a couple of important uh, distinctions. I guess one is about companies that already have products on the market that can be modified. So how how does the EUA apply to companies in that situation? Great question, John. So I've got literally lots of companies coming to me now. I mean, I hate to say it, but they're kind of like coming out of the woodwork, right? They're, they're, they're calling me, they're sending me emails. Hey, we've got a device. We think it would be beneficial for Corona. We've heard about 
of this thing called the emergency use authorization. Can you help us get it through the FDA and so that we can get it onto the market next week? One of the first questions that I ask them is, is this a new device that you have under development or is this an existing device that's currently on the market for something else? And you're talking about making, maybe making some modification so that it can now be beneficial with, with, for Corona. Those are two separate and distinct scenarios, John, and let me explain why. In the latter case, if you have a device on the market for some indication and now you can change it, either in terms of design, labeling, what have you, you can modify it some way to, to make it beneficial for Corona, then in many ways, that will be much easier for the company to do. And here's why. Because FDA has now put out several guidances in the last couple of weeks, specifically telling companies that have devices on the market, if they modify them, and the, and the guidance that I happen to be have in front of me as an, as an example, and we can post this on the website for people to look at if they want, it's called Enforcement Policy for Non-Invasive Remote Monitoring Devices Used to Support Patient Monitoring During the Coronavirus Disease 2019. This is a guidance that just came out in, in March, but there are several guidances along these lines. A couple of things that people need to remember. First and foremost is an EUA is not an approval or a clearance. It's an EUA is not an equivalent to a 510K or a PMA or a de novo or anything else. It is an authorization. It's what I like to call a temporary authorization, meaning that all of these EUAs are going to expire when when the Secretary of Health and Human Services declares that this public health crisis to be over. Okay, so at that point, these things will expire and the companies will have to then take these products off the market unless, and this is what I'm advising my customers, John, who are developing new products, if you can get your product onto the market first under the EUA, then in parallel to that, you should be working on your 510K, your de novo, your PMA, whatever it is, so that you can keep it on the market that they're after. Yeah, okay? that makes a lot so of sense. One thing, so one thing that people remember, this is a temporary authorization. Going back to the guidance that I just uh, mentioned a moment ago, John, this is the important part, and I'm, and I'm reading directly from the guidance because FDA always parses their words very carefully, almost as carefully as I do. They say, FDA does not intend to object. Again, that's the key phrase. FDA does not intend to object to limited modifications. Again, that's another key phrase. Limited modifications to indications, claims, functionality, hardware, or software of an FDA-cleared, in this case, non-invasive remote monitoring device. But these are, as I said, they're similar other similar guidances for other types of critical devices that are necessary for corona as well. Yeah. FDA does not intend to object to limited modifications. What does that mean, John? <laughs> very, very simple. Very simple. As long as the company does what they're supposed to do from an engineering and biology perspective, FDA has no problems. If the company, and I'm not you know, mentioning any names here, John, but you and I both know there are folks out there that do this. If the company views this as an excuse to take shortcuts and not do certain things, FDA is going to be all over them. And regrettably, John, here's an interesting statistic to share with you and our audience. Uh, FDA now has issued almost as many warning letters as they have emergency use authorizations. 
almost as many warning letters. So, and, and you're just EA, talking about you're just talking about as a result of COVID nineteen, right? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Correct. So to, to, to close up this part of our discussion, and I'm sorry if I'm getting a little long-winded here, John, if you have a device that's already on the market for something else and you can modify it in some limited way in terms of the indications, claims, functionality, hardware, whatever it is, so that it's appropriate for Corona, it's going to be a lot easier for you to do it. And I guarantee that getting an EUA for something like that is going to be easier. On the other hand, if you have a brand new device, a device that's not on the market for anything yet, getting it through even under the EUA is not going to be as easy. Does that yeah, make sense? It does. And I and that last piece I think is really important because I'm personally aware of probably no less than five different initiatives, uh, different teams that are trying, they don't have a product on the market and you know, they're, they're trying to, you know, they have the right intentions to try to help and they're trying to jump in and figure out what they can do uh, for, to bring a product to market to help with the scenario. And, and that's, that's not easy. I mean, there's, there's a lot more hoops there, right? And I don't mean hoops as a negative thing, just there's a lot more challenges if you don't already have that product on the market. Absolutely correct. And that leads us into, you know, another good question. And that is, uh, does the, emergency use authorization lower the regulatory burden that a company has to do in terms of testing and so on compared to other, you know, 510K, PMA, whatever it is. And right out of the FDA, the short answer is yes. FDA has already, in my professional opinion, lowered the regulatory burden on certain types of products, all the way from the most mundane like hand sanitizers and face masks all the way through to much more important, much more critical kinds of products. In some cases, certain kinds of diagnostics and even certain kinds of mechanical devices like ventilators where I don't know about you, John, but to me as a biomedical engineer, I have a problem with that. I think, and this is just my personal opinion, I'm certainly not speaking for FDA or anybody else, I think we should think of the emergency use authorization kind of along the lines of the breakthrough designation program or the BDP that you and I have talked about before. The BDP is not a, if you get BDP status, it does not mean that you have a lower regulatory burden. You still have to do all of the testing that you would have to do even if you didn't get the BDP. What the BDP essentially does is it treats you as a priority to get you through the FDA system faster or more efficiently. I think personally, and again, this is my personal opinion for whatever it's worth, I think we're you know, in, our, in our haste, if you will, to get products onto the market to help people. And let me be clear, you know, obviously there are lots of people out there that, that need and will need our help with our devices. But to lower the regulatory burden in order to help them, you know, that to me, John, that's a bit problematic. Yeah, it's an interesting ethical dilemma, right? Because, you know, um, and maybe let's dive in a, a little bit to like ventilator. I think that's probably a pretty good example. I think it's something that's been prevalent on uh, numerous news reports that I've seen. And there's clearly a ventilator shortage. And, uh, you know, the, the, the Ventilator manufacturers, I mean, I, I don't profess, I, I know what a ventilator is, but I don't profess to know what the supply chain is like in any way, shape, or imagination. But it, if there is truly a ventilator shortage, I know a lot of folks are jumping into that fray to try to say, okay, well, 
let's get some design specs. Uh, I know there's a like a there's a team at MIT that's putting all their design um, specifications out on the open source. I know a lot of other folks are doing that too. But these are people are trying to jump into this and they don't have they don't have a product market. They don't already have a ventilator uh, or anything remotely close to it on the market. And so they're trying to do this from scratch. And folks are getting, you know, sort of stuck, I guess, so to speak, you know, and specifically like the topic of um, electrical safety, uh, the infamous standard IEC 60601 is a pretty rigorous standard to go through. I mean, even in, in the best of times where there's not this sort of pressure of a pandemic, getting through that IEC 60601 testing, it, it takes weeks and weeks and weeks, sometimes months. And and it's a good standard because it is intended to, to, to basically challenge a product from all angles of electrical safety. But, you know, some perceive that we don't have the time of, of weeks, uh, certainly don't have the time of months to get to address this ventilator shortage. So, so what is one supposed to do? Well, that's a great question, John, and let's dig into that. But let me start sort of broad, very, very general, and then we'll get more and more focused uh, with regard to ventilators as we continue our discussion. With regard to, you know, the EUA lowering the regulatory burden, I have to be very careful what I say here, John, but I think it is important to say this. You know that I've been playing this game for a long time, and I've got a lot of uh, personal friends of mine that work in the FDA. Some of them go back to when I, we were in graduate school together. Some of them are, I actually have many former graduate students of mine who are now working at the agency. Over the last couple of weeks, I have been getting increasing numbers of emails from my FDA friends. These are not coming from the FDA email accounts. These are coming from their personal Gmail or Yahoo or whatever it is expressing to me in fair detail concerns that they have about the political pressure that the agency is in under right now to get, you know, these these devices, you know, approved and onto the market and so on. And so I said to one of them a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about ventilators. I said, what would be worse, not having enough ventilators or having a bunch of ventilators that didn't work? Well, let's. This was a couple of weeks ago, John. Fast forward to this week, just just this past Monday, in the LA Times, there was a story: 170 ventilators were delivered that did not work. So this is a problem. You know, obviously we want to get these products out there quickly, but we also want to do it right. I believe yeah. it's possible to do do those two things. But do you, do you, before we get into the FDA requirements for ventilators, John, do you have any thoughts on that? No, I think it's it's really important. I mean, it's um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> if you did it in the good spirit, you know, you developed this ventilator, and and you thought you were being thorough and complete, and and did the testing or, or whatever the case may be to the best of your ability, and you feel good about it, and you know, it just so happened to get to the point of use, and it doesn't work. Uh, <laughs> Which you know, maybe there's, a, there's an old adage, John, and I, I don't want to offend anybody. I'm not sure if it applies here or not, but there's an old adage that says something like the road to hell is paved with, paved with the best of intentions. So I want to be very clear. All of the people that are working in this area, both in the industry as well as the SDA, I'm sure they have nothing but the best of intentions. And in some cases, they're doing it for purely altruistic reasons. They're not even looking to make money. Those are all wonderful goals. I, you know, Kudos to everybody who, who, who fits that. But at the same time, we need to make sure that we know what we're doing. 
So let's yeah. get a little more specific, John. Coming back to your original question, I've gotten this question from a couple of ventilator companies that I'm working with now, or companies like you mentioned earlier, who were never in the ventilator business, but now they are. <laughs> yeah, I know. So I got the, 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 the question, just got this question earlier today, in fact. What are the FDA requirements for the for a ventilator under the emergency use authorization? And I said, well, there aren't any. I mean, why should there be? I mean, do first of all, the emergency use authorization Authorization isn't used very often. And second of all, are we going to create, you know, requirements for, you know, the thousands and thousands of different medical devices specifically under the emergency use authorization? Of course not. That's nuts. So here's the advice I get, gave to them. A couple of steps. Step one, forget about the corona situation for a second. If we were developing a, a ventilator, pretend that we're still allowed to go on airplanes and walk out of our house, right? So corona never happens, right? So what would be the requirements for developing our ventilator? And I gave several suggestions where to find them. One is look at previous filings, previous submissions, you know, 510Ks and so on. By the way, another thing that I find interesting, John, is how so many people, they use the word ventilator in sort of a ubiquitous or a generic yeah. sense. There are about 13 different product codes, FDA product codes for ventilators, and another 13 for ventilator-related uh, kinds of things like tubings and accessories and stuff like that. Most of them are class two. A few of them, like the tubing and so on, those are class one. But believe it or not, John, there's one FDA product code for ventilators that's class three. So I think it's very dangerous for us to simply refer to ventilators in a in a generic, generic or ubiquitous sense. And here's a few more statistics for you, John. There were over 400 510Ks thus far for ventilators. Thus far, we don't have any de novos, but there are also a little over 60 PMAs for ventilators. So I don't think that we're doing ourselves any favors by oversimplifying the ventilator world by just referring to a ventilator in a in a generic sure. or a ubiquitous sense. Okay. Sure. So back to where do we find these standards? So look at what's been done in the past, 510K, PMA, what have you. That's that's part number one. Part number two is look at the FDA product codes, because for all of the product codes that are either class two or higher, as you know, they're going to have special controls and see what those special controls are. And that's another way, another source to get that information. So, so pretend that we're not living in the coronavirus world. We're delivering, developing a ventilator. What would all of the testing necessary to do? And, and look at guidance documents, obviously, for ventilators as well. That's, that's the third one. So take all of that information, put it in together into one place. That's step number one. Step number two now, and this is where it gets specific to the uh, emergency use authorization. Step number two is to triage that list. In other words, prioritize that list, identify which of these things are the most important from a safety and efficacy perspective, and put those to the top of the list. And regardless if you're going to do an emergency use authorization or not, I hope, John, that you and I and everybody else would agree that when it comes to safety and efficacy, there are no shortcuts. We need to do that kind of testing. On the other hand, there's also going to be a bunch of other kinds of testing. I don't want to say that it's not important. But it's less important. Things like mm, sterility, shelf life, packaging integrity, maybe even biocompatibility for a, for a ventilator. I'm not sure. But those things are less important. 
important. So we might be able to go to the FDA and say, look, we want to develop a ventilator. Here are all the, here's all the testing that was done in the past for ventilators. But because of the crisis that we're in right now, we've triaged this list. These are the tests that are most important from a safety, efficacy, and risk perspective, and we will absolutely do those. On the other hand, these are these other tests that you know, we don't have to do right now. That's stuff that we can kind of push to the back burner, so to speak. And that would be the logic that I would use and that I am using with the devices that I'm involved with to bring this to the FDA. At the end of the day, John, whether we're talking about a emergency use authorization or not, we got to make sure that the products are safe and effective. We got to make sure that they do what they say that they're going to do, because having 170 ventilators that go out that don't work, I don't know about you, John, but to me, I wouldn't want my name associated with that. Yeah, and nor would I want somebody that I loved and cared about to be the patient receiving one of those either, because that is not a good day. Not a good day. All right, so let me, I guess, sort of restate what I think I heard, some of what I heard you just say. In the guidance for EUA, it does talk about uh, how to communicate with the FDA, even the the more recent uh, items related to covid you know, provide email addresses and contact information. But the the contents of, the expected contents of uh, EUA, I guess application would be the right word or submission, um, are decently well defined. Like it, it describes what is expected uh, when you send this to the FDA. So what I think I heard you say is when I make my case, I shouldn't necessarily expect or require FDA to tell me what to do. Uh, reminds me of some other things you and I have talked about in the past, but instead <laughs> I need to take a, more of a leadership position. I need to show that I've done my due diligence on my homework and that I'm not just making a ventilator because I think it's a good thing to do as a human, but I've actually put some thought into this and I have at least enough of an understanding of all the standards and guidances and you know all the the different things like biocompatibility electrical safety sterility all these things so i i create my laundry list if you will and i carefully and and thoroughly uh prioritize those from a risk perspective justify the things that i'm doing uh, explain the rationale of why these other things may be less important and then use that as my evidence that i'm presenting to fda how did I do? A hundred percent spot on. You got a you got an A plus. I couldn't yes. have said it better myself. <laughs> and if I tried to say it, I'm sure I would have used many more words than you just did. So spot on correct. And the only thing that I might add is simply from a pragmatic perspective, in the FDA's attempt to streamline our this process by creating these templates which are available, you know, through the um, emergency use authorization uh, section of the FDA website. There are templates there that can be used in, let's say, for some of the common kinds of products. Like, for example, I have two diagnostic products that I'm helping with. There's, you know, a template that's, you know, geared specifically to diagnostic. So that's, you know, a no-brainer. When it comes to things like ventilators, again, there's a couple of other templates that can be adopted. But a lot of products, John, that have the potential to benefit uh, coronavirus patients um, don't fit into one of those existing categories. For example, the image analysis kind of a software that I mentioned earlier in our discussion today. How do we use a template that's intended for a diagnostic for a piece of software, right? I have no idea, but mm-hmm. we have to, you know, adopt. We, so, so my advice uh, to companies along these lines is, 
don't think about this quite so much as a template, you know, filling in the forms, dotting the I's, crossing the T's, ticking the boxes. Think of it more like a pre-sub submission. You know, where you put together a pack of information, you know, here's my device, this is what it does, this is how it works, this is the testing that we're doing, and so on. And for all of the following reasons, this is why it fits the uh, emergency use authorization criteria. So I don't want the paperwork to be an excuse to hold us back. You know, unlike some other people, I refuse to use regulation, or in this case, the paperwork is an excuse to hold us back. Instead, I want to figure out how we can make progress as opposed to coming up with a hundred reasons of why we can't, or worse, playing the blame game. Oh yeah, we've got this wonderful technology, but we can't get it onto the market because FDA is, you know, being too difficult or something like that. That doesn't serve anybody. Yeah. And I mean, I know that, you know, so I guess the key advice for folks who are curious about uh, EUA and and how they might be able to help with COVID nineteen, I think the key points is this is not a shortcut, folks. You still have to have good engineering, good science uh, to support this this opportunity. Or if it feels like opportunity might be the wrong word, but you still have to have good science and good engineering to support your case. Um, so you know, first and foremost, I mean, let's. I know we mentioned it a couple of times, but what would happen if if a ventilator or any other uh, device was uh, available for healthcare providers and patients and it doesn't work? That would be a bad day, very, very bad day and, and not make it any better. Um, but, you know, one of the things like uh, let's talk a little bit about testing. Uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts about this, but. Um, conceivably, you know, like an electrical safety, I, I hate to keep going back to that one, but, but that is a bear of a test, like I said, under, under normal circumstances. But there's a relatively finite number of resources who can actually conduct this type of testing. And, you know, does a lot of people jumping into this now constrain that resource uh, and prevent that resource from being available for other products that aren't necessarily EUA, but you know other worthy causes from a medical perspective. Do you have any thoughts on on what we're doing to the whole supply chain with some of these types of things? Well, let me focus on uh, the testing itself more so than the, the supply chain. Um, uh, yeah, simple answer is I do have thoughts on this. I mean, quite simply to me, these are engineering questions. These are not, nor should they be, regulatory questions. And a lot of this, John, you and I have talked about before in the, you know, in terms of design controls and so on. But when it comes to electrical safety, for example, I mean, I would like to believe that we have done some testing to show that if you have an electrical device and you plug it into the wall, that somebody's not going to get electrocuted. I mean, to me, that's, you know, common sense. Now, yeah. I, you know, as a PhD in biomedical engineering, of course, that's a gross oversimplification. But once again, you know, I find it interesting in this industry, John, everybody talks about we take a risk-based approach to this and that. Well, shouldn't we take a risk-based approach to testing as well, especially when it comes to the emergency use authorization, as I said before, with regard to the ventilators, put together a laundry list of all of the tests and then triage it, identify the ones that are the most critical to safety, efficacy, and yes, risk and do those. And the ones that are less critical, we don't have to do those, at least not right away. You know, maybe maybe further down the road. I don't know if that answers your question, John, but I have a feeling that the reason why, and I talked to a company just earlier today that 
expressed frustration when they went to different testing labs. Uh, they were getting conflicting results, and they said they asked me, "Why are we getting flicked?" conflicting results. And I said, well, I wasn't part of the conversation, but my best guess is you're talking to a bunch of box tickers, you know, of uh, people who are, who are just, you know, going down the list. This is, this is what's required. This, 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 does it apply in your situation? I don't know, but it's on my form. So you got to do it. Yeah. Am I being too blunt done? No, Kevin? that's no, I, I think you're spot on. And, and I think that, that <laughs> but, I, but, I, but I think that's the challenge in some respects. I mean, in, uh, that I'll put out to those listening who are, you know, exploring uh, these opportunities to help patients. Um, you know, it, it goes back to what I mentioned earlier. Man, I I, I learned uh, this basic sentiment or the intent behind this from the great Mike Drews. But, you know, this is where we have to uh, take more of a leadership position. You know, uh, you know, we're, we can't go to FDA and say, uh, give me my grade. Or I can't go to, to the test labs and say, Tell me what I need to do. You know that they're not going to spoon feed us. Uh, we have to take the leadership position, and you know, uh, and say these are the tests that I need done, and I've prioritized these, and here's why. And and then you know, take more of that lead role. So I think that's really important. That's one of the key things that I picked up on today's conversation. And and to, just to take it. A- Tiny bit further than I think we should probably wrap this up. Uh, you know, many of these themes that we're talking about today in the context of coronavirus really span, you know, many of the conversations that we've had, you know, over the years. For example, when I go to the FDA with a, with a pre-sub, as I frequently do, I don't simply justify that I'm doing. I also explain why, uh, exp- list the tests that I'm not doing and why I'm not doing them. I want to demonstrate to my FDA friends that I know what I'm doing, that, I, that I'm uh, not taking shortcuts, that I'm certainly not, you know, just ticking boxes on a form. And so that's the same approach that I would take here. These are the tests that we're going to do right away because, hands down, these are the ones that are the most important. On the other hand, these are the tests that if this was not a healthcare crisis, we would do them. But given the situation, given the numbers increasing, as we hear from the news every single day, we just can't take the the, the time to do them, not because they're not important, because if they were important, why would we ever do them? So not because they're not important, but rather they're they're not important to do right now. There's other things more important to do first, and then we can do these later if necessary. Does that make sense, John? I mean, to me, it, that's common it does. sense. But- no, it does make sense. And I mean, I guess... <laughs> Uh, maybe this is a different conversation for a different day, but you know, there is a lot of encouragement that I'm seeing from folks. It's like, um, you know, one company in particular uh, went from, uh, they had a decision that they made within their company and they they said, you know, we we have the engineering capabilities and the technical know-how and the experience to, to help in this time of need. And so they did this business pivot and they went from that decision point to like uh, a week later, they had uh, built, you know, the first prototype units and, and had done some preliminary bench testing. And then I think the next week they had a conversation with the FDA and then the next week uh, they're in doing GLP animal testing. Um, so the, to me, there's, there's, uh, when we get through this, you know, we get a little bit of time and distance after this is over. I think there's going to be some valuable lessons that we can all take from this. I mean, to go from nothing to animal test, GLP animal testing in a, like a few week period of time, 
uh, is, is that's I would pretty say, John, that's nothing, that's nothing short of miraculous in our yeah. industry to go from, from zero to animals in three weeks is phenomenal. And my question is, if we can do it with Corona, Amen. why can't we do it with other things as well? Yeah, but that's, that's a topic of a, of a different yeah. discussion. Maybe, maybe John, we need to wrap this up. Yeah, that sounds good. So, um, how would you, what, what parting thoughts and words of wisdom do you want to leave the audience with today? Well, whether they're words of wisdom or not, I'm not sure, John, but in terms of parting thoughts, I would offer just to follow, uh, just to recap a, follow, a couple of things that we mentioned. First of all, in my view, and again, this is not speaking for FDA or anybody else, I don't think that the uh, emergency use authorization should be used as a um, as a shortcut, as a something with a, a lower regulatory burden. Uh, instead, it should be viewed as more like the Breakthrough Designation Program or the BDP. It's a more efficient way to get through the system, but it doesn't mean that we do less work, especially when it comes to safety and efficacy testing. That's That's number one. Number two, altruism is wonderful, and there are a lot of people where where truly their their hearts are in the right place. I talk to them every single day. They they want to do nothing more than help people, help the world, make the world a better place, and those are noble goals without a doubt. But when it comes to medical devices, you know, we're not manufacturing pogo sticks here. So we still need to do things right. I personally believe that it's possible to do things quickly and right at the same time. It's not like we have to choose one or the other, but it is a challenge and we have to, um, uh, we, we have to be careful. And then the, the last thing that I thought I would share with you and your audience uh, today, John, is a study that came out in RAPS just today, and we can post this on the website if you want. Uh, the, the, the title says, uh, Priority Reviews for Class 3 Devices Increase the Likelihood of Recalls. This is from the Journal of the American Medical Association, and then reprinted in wraps. Now, obviously, this has nothing to do with COVID or the um, or the uh, emergency use authorization, but their conclusion is that class three medical devices that receive expedited reviews. And keep in mind, John, the the emergency use authorization is essentially an expedited review. So class three medical devices that receive these expedited reviews are more likely to be recalled after spending less time on the market than devices that undergo a standard PMA review. Now, obviously, that's not has nothing to do with COVID. That's for just class three devices in general. But I believe that the same applies to COVID and any other kind of a um, uh, situation where there's so much pressure on the agency to get things through quickly. The question is, are we setting ourselves up for some, you know, some, some more problems in the future? I'll leave that as a rhetorical question, but perhaps more than anything else, John, we as professionals working in this industry, we need to try to do everything that we can to prevent those problems. Of course, we can never prevent every problem, but we can prevent many of them. Those are some of my final yeah. thoughts, John. What else would you leave the audience from our discussion today? Um, yeah, so I, w- I want you all to to realize that you know there are th- obviously things that each of us uh, can do uh, right now, and frankly, every day. Um, you know, it, uh, excuse the expression, but it sucks that it takes a pandemic for us to realize that that uh, there's more that we can do to, to help uh, the human race. Um, but you know, that aside, I'm, I'm glad that that folks are uh, excited about ways to try to help, and and that's that's awesome. 
And, you know, just to echo what Mike has shared uh, and what we've talked about today, um, helping people doesn't mean take shortcuts. Uh, you know, again, helping people means that we've thoroughly vetted, tested, and and assessed the situation and, you know, that we've, we've got to do the right thing. I mean, our job as medical device professionals, uh, I think it's our our moral obligation is to improve the quality of life. So let's make sure that the things that we do each and every day during the design, development, testing, and manufacturing of our products is with that in mind. So uh, thank you and all. I would just remind our, yeah, uh, one second, John, I would just remind our audience of one of the things I said earlier now, and I'll leave this as a rhetorical question, but I asked this question a few weeks ago, which is worse, not having enough ventilators or having a bunch of ventilators that don't work? Regrettably, John, and I take absolutely no pleasure in, in saying this, but regrettably, we now have evidence of that happening. We need to do all that we can to try to prevent that. Yeah, for sure. Mike, thank you so much. I know this is a, a timely, hot topic uh, and uh, really an, an important one to, to get out to the to the medical device industry and, and any of our, uh, folks who might be new to the medical device industry who are diving in a little bit. Um, if you have any questions, comments, uh, uh, you need some tips and pointers, feel free to reach out to Mike uh, or you can reach out to me and, and the team at Greenlight. We, we are truly here to help. So we want to give you clarity and guidance and, and help lead you in that right direction because, you know, at the end of the day, patients' lives are at stake. So thank you so much for being a listener of the Global Medical Device Podcast.